and welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, the podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in. I really, really appreciate all the love and the support that you all have been giving. The podcast has been growing and I really appreciate it. I mean, it's it's all it's all about you guys and uh, try, trying to get the information out to you and trying to make sure that I give a good product and something for us and all of us to think about in order to bridge that divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you once again. Remember that you can support the podcast through uh, PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. PayPal is C-A-P-T, capped, that's capped, Hunter at PayPal, right? So PayPal is capped Hunter. Cash App and Venmo are our CPTL Hunter. Uh, I had to change the uh, PayPal for, I don't, I don't want to get into that, but I had to pay, change that. So it's different. Uh, it still had the other PayPal account with CPTL Hunter. So if you send the money to CPTL Hunter to PayPal, I'll still get it. But I would prefer it if you send it to CAPT Hunter. Um, you remember, you can still support the podcast through Patreon uh, page, Captain Hunter's uh, podcast on Patreon, P-A-T. R-E-O-N.com. Go over the Captain Hunters podcast over there. Um, and so uh, remember to rate, subscribe, and share. And that is so very and vitally important that you guys rate, subscribe, and share. And so what I want to do is I want to read uh, some, some reviews that were posted on Apple or iTunes or whatever they're calling themselves. Um, and I really appreciate um, uh, the, the love and support in the reviews that people are given. I see some ratings on there. Please continue to do that. If, no matter what platform you're listening to this on, whether it's Spreaker, Breaker, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, uh, Spotify, the, the website, uh, Apple, uh, Google, wherever you're listening to this at, please give a rating. Please give a thumbs up. Give, give a star rating uh, and everything like that. Um, and also remember that I'm also, you can also email me a rating or just email me just in general, whether you're looking for show topics, uh, to give suggestions for show topics, uh, interview, uh, interviewer interviews, uh, or if you're just looking just, to, you know, just kind of talk and everything like that. So, and that email address is cptlhunter at gmail.com, cptlhunter at gmail.com. Please send me your uh, your your uh, reviews and just you know what you think of the show and everything like that. I would really really appreciate it. So again, back to the reviews that were on Apple. Uh, one uh, person's Prospect Farms says, "Smart policeman, take a listen and learn something interesting." Uh, uh, Laney listens uh, said, "For thinkers and activists." Couldn't be more relevant right now. Thank you, Captain Hunter, for the service of making this thoughtful investigative podcast. And uh, Trika186 says, I absolutely love the content and how it's presented. The host is no joke. Exclamation point there. <laughs> Very knowledgeable, wonderful perspective. For anyone who uh, either loves true crime or is just interested in getting more information about how police works, I would recommend... Uh, again, another exclamation point there. Keep up the great work. Another exclamation point. And certainly thank you so much to Trika to listen to Laney Listens and to uh, Prospect Farms for your um, uh, reviews. I really, really appreciate it. I would encourage any, anyone else uh, to, to drop a, a review. I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, and finally, last note before we get into the podcast is I've uh, just released a book. And so uh, once again, looking to bridge that divide between the police and the communities that they serve. If you're watching this on YouTube, I've just uh, uh, stuck up a the, the cover of the book. And so I'm really, really looking forward to to um, 
to having this and really discussing, um, you know, my perspective on what's going on. Uh, the name of the book is Police Reform. The name of the book is Police Reform, a retired police captain's perspective on the evolution of law enforcement in America and how to improve the criminal justice system. Yes, it's a it's a lengthy subtitle, but I thought it was very important to get my perspectives in there and get, you know, what you're going to be reading in the book. Um, so it's my first book. Um, we'll see if I re release any more. <laughs> we'll see about that. Um, so you can contact me once again, cptlhunter at gmail.com for, for if you want a copy of the book. You can go over to the website, hunterpolicetraining.com. Um, for the uh, uh, in order to uh, get access to the book hunterpolicetraining.com it will be on available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever else people get their books uh, the ebook will be coming in a few in a few months uh, well in a few weeks uh, right now it's just available on paperback um, but uh, I would do plan to, to do an ebook uh, fairly soon I want it I want it done in a couple of weeks actually um, so, so I'm really looking forward to, to the release of this book. I really hope that it, that it really gives some people some, some insight and perspectives into my, my life, my career in law enforcement, as well as what we can do going forward and how we can really bridge that divide between the police and the communities that they serve. So, uh, that's enough about that. And the announcements, uh, just to head over to the website and the hunterpolicetraining.com and, uh, and order your copy of the book today. So what I wanted to talk about today or we, we wanted to get into for today uh, is we got uh, attorney uh, John Smith uh, returning uh, to the podcast. Uh, he was on before. Please make sure that you go back and listen to the previous episode with attorney John Smith. Um, and so we, we had a good conversation about how the unions are impacting uh, uh, or, or, or resisting more likely the, the reform changes that so many people want to bring about. And so with the advent of George Floyd and so many other things, uh, I really thought that I would uh, call him back. And he was so gracious and kind enough to to come back on the show. And we're going to have another conversation, continue the conversation really about about the changes that uh, the people want uh, and that sometimes the city managers want, city leaders want. But uh, unions are so resistant and hesitant to uh, to to make those changes. And I wanted to bring it back once again, considering all that's going on today. Uh, uh, with all the protests and riots and everything like that and all the different um, uh, um, uh, legislation that is being presented and put forth, um, how the unions are going to react and try to counteract some of the ideas that are going on. So uh, I read Attorney John Smith's bio before previous episode. Please make sure you go back and listen to it. So we're going to jump right into it. Here is the interview. Once again, in returning Attorney Jonathan Smith. So, uh, so I thank you once again for coming on. I, I don't want to uh, delay the time here. So thank you again, Attorney Jonathan Smith, for coming back on. I was just listening uh, to our, our previous episode, and we were really talking about some good, deep stuff. And I really thank you for coming back on. Glad to do it. But thank you for thank you for having this program. It's an important it's an important conversation. Uh, I, I'm trying. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so. Why don't you tell us what you've been up to? I asked you about the COVID times and, and uh, how you're making out, how the family's making out. And, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, well, we're, we're all good. I mean, you know, one of the things, these are um, times of such great hazard and such great opportunity. Um, it's really been an interesting period. You know, when I, um, at the Lawyers Committee, you know, we do a broad range of civil rights work and the people who were most hit fastest were people um, who were in uh, custody people either in prisons or jails or in psychiatric hospitals. Uh, and then those who look, were 
uh, low wage jobs. And so we really have pivoted hard to try to meet those um, those needs and brought some litigation against our psychiatric hospital and our halfway house and the federal prison at the same time as we're trying to really support low wage workers um, who can't get access to, you know, our local uh, Department of Employment Services unemployment system is a complete mess. And so, you know, seeing, you know, particularly um, low wage African-American and Latinx workers and language minorities are just having a terrible time getting access to basic unemployment insurance that they're entitled to. So it's been a wild time. And then with the national reckoning after the death of George Floyd, it's been, we've been able to push our, our you know, we've always had a racial justice focus to our work, uh, but it's been able to us to really work uh, in coalition with a lot of folks around some of the issues that we've been trying to get done. And I have to say, that's one of the things that's been really interesting at this time is that we have um, some things that we thought were impossible, we're actually getting done things like, um, some of the changes in uh, policing and dealing with issues around um, no-knock warrants and um, uh, how civilians can make complaints and all that sort of stuff. So it's been um, it's been an interesting moment um, where uh, you see lots of pain, lots of suffering, um, and at the same time, sort of uh, it's a moment of real opportunity. We can come out of this crisis maybe better than we went into it in some ways. So you started off by saying that uh, you do a lot of work for the persons who are incarcerated in, in uh, psychiatric mm-hmm. hospitals, who, who they were hit hardest. What exactly is it that you do for them? So here in the District of Columbia, um, we have one, psychi- one public psychiatric hospital, um, and uh, the hospital has had challenges in its operation for decades. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fair to say it was actually under uh, in a consent decree with the federal government for something like three decades. They came out of that consent decree five or six years ago. In the fall of this last year, they went 28 days without water. They had a problem with their water supply. And so oh, wow. we had sued over the failure to, we had sued them over the failure to provide um, both safe conditions for the patients as well as psychiatric services during, you know, you, most of the people that are there, almost all the people that are locked up are locked up pursuant to a, um, a court order in a criminal case. Um, and, you know, the justification for locking them up in the psychiatric hospitals, they're going to get treatment. And during the crisis periods, they weren't getting treatment. So they didn't get treatment during the water crisis. We were litigating their emergency plan and then COVID hit. And so we've been, uh, we got a, um, and when COVID hit, it just swept through the hospital. We've had something like 20 deaths um, in, in the hospital, two staff members, nearly half of the patients were infected with COVID. And so we um, were able to secure a temporary restraining order and then a preliminary injunction that has essentially stopped the spread of the, of the virus inside the facility and returned some of the psychiatric services that people need. Um, you know, we also, you know, we ended up suing our local halfway houses, but two, it's really not a halfway house, it's really a little a minimum security prison. They had 220 men that were locked in um, with nothing to prevent the spread of COVID, no screening, no surveillance of staff coming in and out, no access to medical care. Then we ended up um, uh, in the face of a court about to act, they closed the halfway house. So we've been trying to do that, um, you know, work, um, uh, you know, to try to protect some of the folks who just, there's no way that if you're incarcerated, you can do anything to protect yourself from the spread of the virus. And that's why, if you look across the country, um, you know, prisons and jails are now becoming one of the, you know, the largest hotspots in the nation. In the wake of George Floyd's 
um, Das, we um, you know uh, have been supporting some of the work that Black Lives Matters and others are doing, demonstrating, and probably our most—it's not our only, but our most significant case—is that when um, the federal officials um, on June first violently pushed all the demonstrators out of Lafayette Park so that the president could hold a Bible in front of upside the, down. <laughs> yeah, upside down at that. Exactly. <laughs> um, we, we represent Black Lives Matters and a group of demonstrators who were injured in, in that demonstration and litigation against uh, Trump and Barr and others in the administration. So, but we've been doing a lot of other work in, around that space. I personally have been um, uh, honored to be asked to lead an investigation of the, uh, by the city of Aurora, Colorado into the death of Elijah McClain. And we're just starting that process um, now. Uh, and to take a look at what happened that day, as well as um, doing some work in Fort Worth, Texas, around the former their police department there with regard to a team. We just issued our first report uh, a couple of weeks back. So um, this has been a moment of really hoping that we can contribute to the, the national conversation about what police, you know, how do we define public safety? How do we think about public safety? How does public safety um, been defined by the communities that are most impacted um, and that, um, you know, it's co-produced with uh, with police, and so um, it's been a it's been a busy period, and I suspect it'll be busy for a bit. But the you know the bad news is that um, what we've seen in terms of you know the the real ugly scar of racial inequity um, has become much more exposed in the the last um, few months. Um, and uh, but the good news is that that's created some opportunities for us to try to address some of the things that. A lot of people have been working on it for decades and have not made progress on and we're starting to make a little bit of progress in some important areas. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so Fort Worth, Texas, that was the one uh, that uh, uh, the guy shot through the window at the lady? Yes, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tatania Jefferson, she was, um, her front door was open and one of the neighbors called and said, um, I, my neighbor's door is open. Um, so they sent a police officer, she was playing video games with her nephew. It was like two in the morning, something like that. And um, uh, she was standing at the window and she was shot through her back window and killed. Yeah, that, that was really, really horrible and devastating. I, I, I yeah. really can't imagine that happening to people, you know. So you're doing, a, so they, the department there is saying they need reforms or they're agreeing to the reforms or? Well, they, um, they are starting to engage in some reform. We, um, they, uh, in the wake of Ms. Jefferson's death, they, um, and the officer was charged with murder, um, and he quit the department. Um, they said that they hired a team of us to come in and take a look at the department, and we're particularly looking at sort of questions around force and accountability. Um, and uh, hopefully it will lead to reforms that the city has already begun some reform efforts. Um, I think the most consequential um, They've taken several steps, but one of the most consequential steps is that they've um, started to um, uh, engage the mental health community much more in the response to calls, and hopefully are moving towards, or they're talking about moving towards a model um, where um, law enforcement will um, support mental health response to calls rather than be the primary responder to calls for people in crisis. And if you, you know, that is a fairly significant step across the country we're seeing departments take to um, send the right person to the scene. Sometimes showing up, as you know, probably better than anybody, 
sometimes showing up with the uniform and the badge um, for someone who's in crisis um, may make it harder rather than easier for that situation to get resolved. Yeah, uh, when I first heard about that, I was kind of laughing at the idea, but I've come to uh, accept that uh, as, as probably the way to go. I um, was a member, we, we have a, a group, an organization here in Connecticut, it's cable. And so essentially what it was, was a program that would, they would work with social workers as well as police officers. They would train mm -hmm. police officers to work uh, in, in tandem. And so if someone was in a mental health crisis, then they would send us, and I was one of the first officers. I was actually a sergeant at the time. And so they would seen, send us to the scene. That way we could help to talk the person down or get them to help yeah. them eat and then call them uh, a social worker in. And so um, I, I understand now that many officers or many departments are choosing rather to, are looking at sending a social worker rather than police at all because of exactly what you mentioned. Maybe the uniform is, is exacerbating the problem. Uh, people look to suicide by cop and all the kind of stuff. So if we eliminate that, that perspective, obviously, you know, with good screening, they don't want, uh, yeah. uh, we don't want the civilian social workers getting injured or anything like that. So, I, so I'm coming to accept and appreciate that. Uh, more and more. So. Right, but if there's no weapon involved, um, if it's a family member, I mean, I when I was at the Justice Department, I was involved in the investigation of the Cleveland Police uh, Bureau, and um, the team there looked at a bunch of cases where someone was in crisis, and it was, there was one case that just sticks in my mind, as a young woman who, when family member called, she was off her psychiatric medication, she stopped taking her psychiatric medication, and she was in crisis, and um, a trained officer like you or a crisis intervention officer was sent to the scene and was able to stabilize the situation. She, you know, he, you know, she calmed down. She was feeling better. There was a decision made that she didn't need, um, she didn't need to be hospitalized. Um, the mother felt comfortable. Later that day, she went back into crisis. The police were called again. The team that didn't have crisis intervention training responded to that call she ended up being suffocated to death by the officers where they were restraining her. And it was, you know, in the same day to have two officers respond, one with training, one without, for the situation to be resolved peaceably in one case and for her to die in the other, just really I think demonstrates the incredible importance of that training and having the right officers, you know, not every officer is gonna be cut out to have the kind of patience and compassion and empathy not nothing wrong with that. We're all different people, but to identify people who are you know, who have those skills and backgrounds, and um, as well as um, the temperament to do uh, that kind of work with people in crisis is really important. It's hard. I mean, as you know, when you run into somebody who's in a psychiatric or emotional, you know, very difficult situation, they're having a really bad day and they're quite upset. It's very difficult, and it's it takes some real skill to be able to peaceably resolve those situations. And that's why that training is so important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't um, uh, emphasize and stress that enough, you know, and it was, I, I agree with you. Every, every officer should not res be responding to those types of calls and every officer should not be a SWAT officer. Right. So we're all different people, you know, so it takes, it takes all types. And I certainly yep. uh, think that that, that, that training is important. Um, I know that in my own department, we had that type of training, the CIT training. We also did more with uh, uh, those on the autistic uh, spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, so so getting this under, having an understanding about what's going on in society 
getting our officers to be able to deal with those members of society is so very, very important, very, very important. And so I wanted to have you on to, to discuss, um, uh, you know, unions once again and how they're going to try to block some of these reforms that, we're, uh, that we all think that we desperately need. But before we get into that, we talked a little bit about George Floyd. Tell me what you thought about George Floyd and you talk about no-knock no warrants in the Breonna Taylor case. Yeah. Um, can you talk about what you sure. thought about when you saw those cases? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, in, uh, like the rest of the nation, much of the rest of the nation, um, it was extremely difficult to watch George Floyd's death on the video. Um, and, um, you know, I think that one of the things that was sort of hard about it was that it is such not a, it's not the first time, it's not the only time, it's probably not even gonna be the last time. And I think that the community, the pain that the community experienced and, you know, away from, you know, coming off that incident and watching what happened, you know, was palpable it led to the demonstrations across the country, in part because of that video, but in part because of what that video represented for so many other people. For me, I mean, it's hard to, it's horrifying to watch what happened in that officer. One of the things that I um, was extremely disturbed by watching that video were the other officers. Um, because you had other officers who either participated or stood by while um, Mr. Floyd's life was pushed out of his body um, by a, you know, a knee on his neck. Um, and that suggested to me that there's a deep cultural problem in that police department that those officers didn't intervene to stop it from happening. And so um, it, it does demonstrate this is not, you know, we often hear and we hear particularly now from this administration that it's a bad apples problem, that you got a couple of bad officers that are causing all the trouble. And if you just discipline the bad officers or um, you deal with the bad incidents when they happen, that policing is basically fundamentally um, okay the way that it is. And I think that if you've got a, that what the Floyd incident really demonstrated in an important way was that, um, you know, it, there was something wrong that other officers didn't stop that death from happening. It would have, they could have prevented, they could have pulled uh, Chauvin off of Mr. Floyd. It, it, he was not posing a threat to anybody um, and prevented that death from happening. It's very much like what happened, um, Derek Garner, in New York where other officers stood by as he, let, he, he um, was held to the ground and suffocated. And so, um, you know, it, that was one of the, my sort of most profound reactions to watching that was just the need to deal with that cultural problem and to empower officers um, because to have the tools in their toolkit to um, intervene when another officer is engaging misconduct and to create a culture where, um, you know, that officers recognize when that's happening and are able to prevent it. Brianna Taylor was equally very disturbing and in part because um, some of the things that, um, and we haven't seen what's gonna happen with the criminal case there, um, but um, the Supreme Court in recent years has done terrific damage to the Fourth Amendment protections, even in your own home. Um, and so, you have had cases, there was a case three years ago in the United States Supreme Court, very similar to Ms. Taylor's, where um, uh, the police had a warrant for a house. They entered the house, they didn't find what they were looking for. There was a 
separate building on that property they did not have a warrant for. They entered that building um, and the, a couple was sleeping in the bed. He reached for a weapon and because he had no idea, the police just stormed into his house. He had no idea who they were and they shot and killed him. And the Supreme Court said that didn't violate the Fourth Amendment, um, that the officers were in danger. They were permitted to, uh, even if they had created the situation, if they had entered the house illegally, they, everyone agreed that there was no right for them to enter that separate building. Even though they created the danger, um, they had every right to shoot him under the Fourth Amendment. And so we need to, you know, and that, that's the kind of thing that makes me very anxious as I look at what happened with Ms. Daler, that you may very well find the courts may very well find that, that it was not a violation of her Fourth Amendment rights because somebody you know, reached for a weapon when the police illegally entered her, uh, entered her house. And so um, you know, we, we're in desperate need of very significant reform that goes beyond what the Constitution says. We need to really think about what, we, what our values for the way we want to do policing in this country. Is the Supreme Court, I know that they're not supposed to be, but are they? swayed by the public opinion, right? Are all the mass riots, you mentioned the case yeah. that happened three years ago. Could yeah. they look at the Breonna Taylor case and say, okay, listen, it's time to swing back the, in the other direction. Is that, is that possible? Yeah, the Supreme Court is amazingly sensitive to the public mood. Um, and if you look at, it's really, um, uh, it's really interesting, sort of, if you look historically at the way that um, cases where the court has done some big change of course around a social issue. It's in the wake of a social movement. A good example is, um, uh, you know, the Obergefell decision around same-sex marriage. Um, there's two years earlier, there's no way in this country anybody would have thought that um, the Supreme Court would declare a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, but it was because of the work that activists did to change the culture that the Supreme Court followed. And I think that the work that the Black Lives Matters movement is doing and others are organizing on this, in the street and the demonstrations may well save the Fourth Amendment. We were losing the Fourth Amendment um, in the Supreme Court. And, um, and it's not just qualified immunity, all qualified immunity is, a, is an issue that, that we need to address as a country and figure out how to get what we're going to do to replace qualified immunity because something is going to replace it and we need to know what we need to think through carefully what that is but um this i think the supreme court may well think differently about the fourth amendment in the wake of some of these really horrible incidents and the public mood around um uh, the protections that people expect from their constitution and so um it is true that it's the supreme court you know supposed to look objectively at the law, but if there are people living in a context and, um, you know, the, the civil rights movement changed the way the court looked at, at cases, um, the movement for, um, you know, lesbian gay rights changed the way the court, the, I think that, that you saw the decision around transgender rights and employment, I think was largely a result of changing social um, values around protection of people. So I think that Supreme Court is sensitive. I think that this is going to make a profound difference. What's happening on the street today will make a profound difference in the way the courts look at cases. Well, I hope so, because it, it terrifies me that uh, someone can, someone, the police can enter my home and shoot me in the middle of the night. I mean, that's, that should terrify everyone. It really, yes. it really should. And for them to have rendered that decision they did three years ago is reprehensible in my opinion. Um, yeah. um, that's that's crazy. 
you want you, you mentioned the the problem um, uh, with the culture in Minnesota, and listen, I, I know that it's it's very difficult for police officers, former police officers, to be very critical or to be critical of police officers, police departments, police chiefs. I was only a, a, a went to the to the rank of captain, but for me, I look at that police chief in Minnesota who seemed to be a person of color or Minneapolis and um, was really kind of upset with him uh, mm -hmm. because he showed, uh, you know, he took, when he was around the family, he took his hat off and he showed a lot of deference. But you had, he had a chance to get the situation right with Derek Chauvin, you know, 17 complaints ago. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I, I want, could you just delve into, as we get into the police unions, the culture problem of that particular police department, the chief, you may not know them personally, but, but I, that, 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 that was such a problem for me when he's, when he's taking his hat off, he didn't get the situation right. He made this guy a field training officer. And so, yeah, when you mentioned the off, other officers who can't or who didn't step in, there was certainly something going drastically wrong in Minneapolis as far as their police. Yeah. Are. Now, I, I, think, I think that's right. And it does play very much into the question of the role that unions play um, in, in policing. You know, I'm, I'm a person who believes very strongly in, in that anybody who wants to organize should organize. I believe in strongly in, in labor unions. I believe that police officers should have the right to organize and that they should have a right to negotiate to, for the terms and conditions of their employment. That, that due process is important That in the way and procedural justice in the department creates procedural justice outside the department. Um, and that that's, it's both the right thing for the job, but it's also the right thing um, for policing. So I, I'm not a person who thinks we ought to, and I know there are people out there who, you know, think that collective bargaining for, you know, public sector employees, particularly police officers, um, you know, is gotten so off the rails that we ought to eliminate it. So. That said, I do think that what has been negotiated in the contracts, and this, I'm not sure to the extent to which this played a role in, um, in, in Minneapolis, but you certainly see it in many other places. The kinds of things that have been built in the contracts go beyond the normal things you'd expect to see in a labor agreement. And the way that they prevent a department from holding officers accountable and to be able to adjust their behavior is part of the problem. It's not the whole problem in this country. It's not going to solve, fixing this doesn't fix everything, but it makes it a whole lot easier. Um, and so, so you, know, you see examples of where things like um, if a, um, a police officer uh, was found to have engaged in misconduct and was subject to whatever corrective, you know, either discipline or corrective sanction as a result, and two years goes by, that the department can no longer consider that discipline in their promotions, in their assignments. Um, you see situations where officers um, who engage in misconduct, the chief has determined that they are not qualified to be a police officer as a result. And an arbiter will reinstate them to the job because a piece of paper was filed a day late or the charges were not specified in precisely the right way. They didn't really, weren't issues that went to the truth of what had happened or um, and the decision made by somebody who, um, you know, was not somebody who understood policing or understood the consequences of returning that officer to the street. We give police awesome powers in this country. I mean, the, we, there's no other public official 
who has the authority to use force, including deadly force in their daily job, <laughs> and has the right to take away your liberty. And those are really, um, you, know, in, you know, really profound powers that police have. And the, um, uh, you know, whether or not someone is qualified to fulfill that function shouldn't be decided on whether there was a procedural default by the department, whether there was a mistake made in whether the right form was used or the right days were between the charges or whether someone came into the police department, signed the complaint in ink or sent an email. Um, and so those range of things that get in the way of actually getting at the truth. And so I know that I've spoken to the former chief in Minneapolis and she had, she um, didn't specific, speak specifically about Eric Chauvin, but talked frequently about her inability um, when she even knew that there were people on the force um, that she that scared her uh, in terms of their interaction with the public, that her ability to actually remove them from the force or to place them in jobs where they weren't interacting with the public was nearly impossible and was very frustrated by that situation. And so it's, you know, whether that chief could have done more, probably the chief could have done significantly more, but there were structural barriers built into the labor management agreement that made that much more difficult. And so, um, you know, I think that, um, uh, you know, it does go to the culture. The other thing that, that I, and it, you know, it's very hard to talk about unions as a monolith because they're very, very different. Each location has its own you know, union structure and its own union culture and the collective bargaining rights are very different in cities, you know, and you see, so you see, you know, in California, you know, three unions have come together and come up with a reform agenda that they're calling on the state to implement. And so you've seen some real um, forward-leaning, you know, uh, ideas that are coming actually from the rank and file. And then you go to someplace like Cleveland or like Chicago, where you've got this very old school, old guard um, union structure um, that is going to fight anything that's going to bring about change or any suggestion that policing is not perfect in such a way that you then create a hostility between the rank and file and the communities that they're there to serve. And I found that sort of both the contracts themselves, but almost more importantly, that whole culture of us versus them to be amongst the most corrosive in terms of trying to actually bring about the changes the community are seeking in policing. Police, police officers in the community just have to figure out how to be partners and how to work together. And it makes the job of policing safer and more effective, and it creates public safety in a much more um, significant way. Can any of these uh, items that you mentioned be broken, right? Can, can they be fixed? Uh, can a incoming police chief take back power uh, from the unions? Is that possible? Sure. I mean, they, it, it may require going, in some cases, it may require going to the bargaining table. Um, in some cases, some of these things are now embedded in state statutes and you require you to go to the, the state legislature and get changes made. Um, and some things there are within the discretion of the department, whether to negotiate them or not, and they could remove them from the agreement. I think what had happened um, was that, uh, and I know there's some folks that are doing a little bit of this kind of historical look at this question, you know, a lot of these provisions were traded into these agreements to avoid pay raises for officers. Oh. Um, that there was a time when, you know, the unions came in and said, we, we need, you know, $2 more an hour. And the city said, we don't want to pay you $2 more an hour. What would you take instead? And 
Um, so some of these things got built into contracts and it may be that um, part of the solution is for the cities to, to really stand up and where there are paid efficiencies to really confront them and to compensate officers in a fair way. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's really going to be a problem. Yeah. You mentioned um, Black Lives Matter. There's been so much more, so much debate about them, the hashtag, the slogan versus the actual right. organization. Have you ever worked with them? Can you tell us, you know, it sure. can shed some light on people that call them. It's a terrorist group. <laughs> They're funded by George. I'm, I'm dead serious. When I read this stuff on, yeah, on know, Facebook and, and funded by George Soros, nobody even knows who that guy is. So they're just talking. So can you explain who sure. they are, what they are? Sure. I mean, Black Lives Matter was started um, in the wake of um, the death of Trayon Martin. Um, started by three um, women um, in Florida and California um, as a way to um, create a, um, a movement uh, that would provide mutual support and aid amongst um, and to change the dynamics around anti-Black racism in this country and to begin a conversation. And the state, and, and if you read um, Patrice Collier's book, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, her biography, you know, what she talks about and, and the origin of the expression Black Lives Matter is not to the exclusion of anyone else. It was to put out there that, you know, everyone else's or many other people's lives have always mattered. It's never been a question, but there's been always a question about whether black lives has mattered. And, um, uh, and that's what they were trying to accomplish was to, to, to establish this conversation in this country and to bring about real change that value black lives the same as white lives or mattered or, or, or other lives in, 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 um, in this country. And that organizing um, happened, um, you know, at a very community level until Michael Brown died. Um, and uh, that it was a, a movement that many people were involved in, but didn't get much national attention until after um, Michael Brown's death in Ferguson. And then it became much more of a national movement. With the election of, um, Donald Trump, um, a lot of the major push, and it's the Black Lives Matter movement is not, is not limited to policing. A lot of the work happens in all, uh, you know, around a whole lot of other things. Um, with the election of Donald Trump and all of the noise that ended up on the front page of the newspaper, the work of, the, of the, both the organization Black Lives Matter and as well as the movement itself, which you know are some ways two separate things. There's people who you know, support the Black Lives Matters movement, and then there are people who are members of the organization Black Lives Matter, um, you know, continue to happen very much at, an, at a neighborhood level. Here in DC, we work very closely with the Black Lives Matter organization, Black Lives Matters DC, um, on a range of issues around housing, around hunger, around access to education. When COVID came, the Black Lives Matter movement created um, uh, mutual aid organizations. They've identified elderly people in the community or people with, the dis with disabilities in the community. And they were organized so that they would have access to food um, during COVID, or they would collect to ensure that people could, uh, who were about to be evicted might pay their rent. So they did a lot of, there was a lot of work that was happening at that very community level. When George Floyd died and the demonstrations started um, across the country, the Black Lives Matter movement again, um, you know, turned its attention you know, very heavily towards policing, but that's not always, that's not exclusively where, where Black Lives Matters has been. And so 
Um, you know, I am, um, uh, you know, I think that um, uh, it's sometimes there's a way in which people conflate everything that happens on the street with BLM. Um, and um, I can tell you that, um, you know, I've been many demonstrations where the Black Lives Matters movement leaders have been the folks who are calming the crowd, are stopping things from happening that may be destructive um, and are avoiding the fight rather than being in the middle of the fight. Um, that's not to say that there aren't people who are engaging in conduct that is destructive, um, but that's not the Black Lives Matters movement. The Black Lives Matter movement is really about trying to raise this issue and to try to find those changes that will get rid of anti-Black racism and address white supremacy. Yeah, that's always been my thought process, but some people yeah. are, just can't seem to get past. No, <laughs> no and you know, and, and, you know you've, you've seen people, and Portland is such a good example. There have been leaders of the Black Lives Matters movement in Portland um, who um, have been very critical of the people that are out there every night because they're distracting from the basic message. Absolutely. Communicate. Absolutely. And, you know, you saw some BLM folks critical of what happened in way it came down in Seattle because it took away from what we're trying to accomplish um, or what the, the movement is trying to accomplish. And so um, I think there's a lot of incredibly thoughtful people who have been working hard to try to deal with those very serious policy issues about creating race equity in this country. Absolutely. What are your thoughts about defunding the police, abolishing the police? What are your thoughts about that? <laughs> yeah. So I am... Um, I think if you ask 10 people what defunding the police means, you'd get 20 answers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's not a lot of consensus on what, what we mean by that. Um, I do think that um, we have eliminated um, from our local government budgets um, lots of things that um, would provide supports in communities and create and solve problems throughout communities um, and have turned to police to solve every one of our social problems. And so if you think of it, we talked briefly earlier about mental health. Um, you know, 30, I talked to, talked to a lot of police officers, say 30 years ago, they'd encounter somebody in a mental health crisis, you know, once a month or twice a month. And now it's once a day or twice a day um, because we have failed to provide the supports and treatment in the community that would um, prevent that person from running into crisis or have somebody have another resource available to prevent someone from going into crisis. And so um, you've got a situation where, you know, we have, are policing our schools um, and particularly black and brown schools. And, you know, if you look at the origins of that, you had school resource officers for the last century or so, but um, they were in relatively small numbers. Um, two white kids in a suburban Denver neighborhood go shoot up Columbine High, and Bill Clinton puts 70,000 police officers in black and brown schools. And so rather than support those schools to have in place the mechanisms that would create safety in those schools in a non-law enforcement way, We've now made police officers disciplinarians in our schools. 
And that's something that should be done by teachers, that should, there should be peer supports for dealing with that and, and, and other sorts of things. And if you look sort of down, you know, we've got a crisis in affordable housing. And so police are now enforcing, you know, our, rather than send services in to address homelessness, you've got police officers enforcing, you know, no camping laws. And, you know, so there's a range of ways in which we've asked police officers to do a whole bunch of things that are not what police officers are trained to do, nor are they the right agency to be addressing all those concerns. And so when we talk about, you know, I actually, you know, think about um, this is, you know, what is the way in which we in, invest or reinvest? Um, because the, when you talk just about defunding, you miss the important part of the equation. It's not, um, you, know, we're, you know, we want to put money where it's gonna make the biggest difference. And the role of police officers should be reserved to those things that are best for police to do around the solution of crime and the protection of public safety. Um, and that the social problem that are created by inequity and income inequality and wealth inequality ought to be dealt with by somebody other than policing. And that's the way I, the way I see um, this conversation ought to be happening. And so it's often, I think, because in a moment of crisis, we, um, uh, we run to the sort of the simple solutions and not dig into the harder ones. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, um, I think we need to ask the question about what, what are the problems we're trying to solve and then what's the best way to solve them. And I think that will lead us to find that a lot of things we're asking police officers to do now it's not fair to ask police officers just do it, and they're just the wrong people to be engaged in those in those uh, problems, and to solve those problems. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that law enforcement has taken a lot, taken a lot, and asked to do a lot. I mean, our police academies, when I was instructing there, we were, were, were dealing so much with, as we mentioned, mental health and all you know, lost kids and all these different branches of stuff. Like, whoa, when when do we actually enforce the law? <laughs> when do we actually, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, last question here that I want to ask you. We talked about the, the president uh, uh, in Lafayette Square, gassing the people. Uh, you know, I, I watch a lot of uh, CNN pundits, and I didn't see anyone talking about the constitutionality of what he did. I mean, was that not illegal? What, what do you? Yeah, yeah, no, it was. Okay. It was. It, it was. There were there were two fundamental constitutional principles that were violated that day. The first is the First Amendment. People were demonstrating there. They, they, Lafayette Park is a public, is a public forum. It's, and um, people went there to, you know, what better place to petition your government for the redress of grievances than to go to the source of the power of the government, which is at the White House. And people came to have their voices heard, to bring their grievances to government and to, and to ask for change. Um, and when they were shut down, um, you know, you, the government controls speech if there's a reasonable time, place, manner restriction. Is there, is there a basis, a reasonable basis for the government to, to restrict the speech? Otherwise, the speech should go forward. There was no reasonable basis that day to shut down. The, there's no, you know, there was nothing people were there having their voice heard. You know, you know the, for the president's convenience to walk across the square doesn't really meet the reasonable time, place, manner restriction. Now, had they scheduled it three days in advance and they, you know, cordoned it off and all that sort of stuff, maybe you could have made those arguments. But certainly to just people are there and then just to be shoved out in, with, by, the, by police in that way uh, was, um, you know, clear violation of the First Amendment. It's also a violation of the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment 
um, you know, protects from unreasonable searches and seizures. And the courts have held that the use of force is a seizure. When you hit somebody with a baton or you gas them with um, tear gas or you use pepper spray, that's a use of force. And we saw, um, you know, what happened there was the people without warning were attacked by the police. And there's a lot of videotape of this and, um, and badly injured. So not only were their first amount rights injured, but we, you saw people with, um, you know, uh, with, were hit with rubber bullets who have these horrible uh, wounds in their face, um, people who were struck with batons, um, and then um, the use of tear gas, which is a very dangerous substance that's prohibited. I mean, the United Nations has declared it a, a war crime. So, um, you know, we shouldn't be using it in civilian populations. And so, um, you know, you saw this excessive use of force um, at a moment when you're violating people's First Amendment rights. And so that's the basis of our lawsuit against the president and Mr. Barr and the heads of each of the police agencies that were involved is that they were violating people's First Amendment rights and they violated their Fourth Amendment rights. Thought experiment, if William Barr and the other, I think the head of the military was there, whatever his right. title is. SB, yeah. Yeah, if, if, all they, if all of them had said, no, Mr. President, we're not going to do this, what's the consequence of that? And this will be the last question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's actually their job to say no. <laughs> I think the Attorney General, the, the Attorney General is supposed to bring the inconvenient truths to the President and tell him, um, you know, this is the law and this is, um, uh, you know, this is what you can and cannot do. And we've unfortunately seen in this attorney general, um, you know, um, uh, someone who believes in the, uh, the unlimited power of the presidency. I mean, a return to the imperial presidency that preceded, you know, that even Richard Nixon didn't fantasize about. Um, and this sort of sense that if the president does it, it's legal that Mr. Barr has communicated. It's just, it's damaging. Um, to us as a country and to the separation of powers and the checks and balances that are put in place. And as a former member of the Department of Justice, I am horrified by um, the extent to which Barr has broken down this, the wall that exists between um, the legal enforcement of the laws that the Department of Justice, the neutral legal enforcement of the laws the Department of Justice is supposed to engage in um, to completely politicize that process. Um, you know, there was a, after the George Bush administration, um, when there was all that politics and hiring and influence from the White House and decisions of cases, um, there was policies that were put into place to protect the independence of the Justice Department. When I was there, you know, you know there, there was, um, you know, very rigid rules about the ability of, the, of a, the White House to influence anything the department um, was doing. And I actually had a friend that went over to the White House and I was instructed um, by my superiors, you can't talk to him except maybe about the kids and the, your vacation because he can't influence any decisions because he's in the White House. He has to go through political channels in order to do that. Those walls have broken down entirely. You see it in not only in um, the facilitation of what happened in Lafayette Park, but the interference with the prosecutions um, that came out of the Mueller report. You've seen it um, you know, in this whole range of ways in which, um, uh, you know, the, the politicization of, um, uh, you know, the various law enforcement agencies, the immigration policy, you've seen Barr use the department for the political advantage of the president, as opposed to, um, 
enforcing the laws in a neutral way. And that independence of the Justice Department, if the Justice Department is going to have any credibility with the, United, with the United States public, it has to have that independence. It can't be there for, as the political arm of the White House, it has to be the neutral law enforcer of the, of the United States. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate you coming back on the show. Do you have any? Last time I had a, a lot of papers to read. Do you have any new papers I can? I, can <laughs> I could probably send you some stuff. One, okay. thing, one thing we one thing we didn't talk about. I'm just going to throw it in here, and I'll okay. you, um, so you have it. Is that um, uh, sometimes in the conversation around policing, and and you probably have thought a whole lot more about this than I have, is that the experience of black and brown officers is different than the experience of white officers. Um, and um, the Warriors Committee we represent, uh, one of the things we do, we do work on behalf of people whose rights have been violated by police, but we also represent um, officers of color who have been subjected to um, discrimination inside their police department. And currently right now we're representing um, the officers in the Prince George's County Police Department uh, the Black and Latinx officers, Prince George's County Police Department, around some really horrifying discrimination, um, both in terms of the uh, hiring practices in the department. It's a largely African American county. It's one of the largest African American, or it's one of the it's the wealthiest African American majority county in the United States. But the vast majority of the officers in the department are white. Um, uh, African American and Latinx officers have a terrible time getting employed. When they do, they're subjected to horrible discipline. Uh, horrible uh, discrimination in the department, um, and particularly um, uh, with regard to discipline. And we've just, our expert just issued his report that analyzed um, the kinds of treatment that officers of color receive. And we released the report, I should say it was very interesting. We released the report and had a press conference and the chief resigned, the white chief resigned four hours later. So- um, Oh, wow. <laughs> Wow. But the, pro the, the problems in the department are not going to solve by changing the chief. We, we really need to get the deep policy changes. And it's what's profound to me in talking to our clients is how deeply they care about what happens in doing interactions between the community and police officers and how um, concerned they are that the racialized climate in the workplace affects um, the climate on the street. And um, it really is a, it's a conversation that as we often, when we think about um, what police reform looks like, um, we often don't engage officers of color in quite the way um, that we should. And I'll send you, there are um, clients just issued a set of recommendations around reform that goes beyond the workforce. So it's like, how should the department operate? Um, including things like modernizing use of force policy in the department, which was actually last updated, I think in the 1970s. So, um, you know, things have changed in terms of the way we think about the use of force. So there, um, you know, and so just to put on the table that um, there's, that is another conversation that is important to have as the, and, and as you think and talk about unions, in my experience talking to officers of color, their experience with unions is very different than white officers experience with unions. Um, more than once I've heard the General order of police described as for other people by black officers. And so um, it is a, um, uh, you know, it's, it's also part of the union dialogue in terms of how to ensure that there's real equity for officers, for people who, of color who take these jobs um, to not be subjected to discrimination by their coworkers and by the department itself. 
No, I, I definitely appreciate you bringing that up. My own department, we had a, an organization called the Guardians, you know, and there was yeah. uh, black, black officers. Um, I've talked to uh, the head of the National Black Officers Association of America. Uh, and um, yeah, so there's a San Diego uh, Police Department. Uh, they had their own uh, Black Officers Association. I want to get them on the podcast as well. So I'm very well aware of these types of problems that people have. Um, and I do want to let you go. I don't want to hold you up. <laughs> uh, so, so speaking of, of, of resigning um, police chiefs and defunding the police, right, that, that combination came together, I believe, in Seattle with the black chief, the black female mm-hmm. chief, uh, recently resigned. What are your, what are your thoughts about, about that? And she resigned over uh, the, the funding, essentially, or, or reallocating of money. What are your thoughts about it? Yeah, so I, I, I was involved in the reforms of the Seattle Police Department when uh, I was at the Department of Justice. Um, and uh, so, and Jenny Durkin, who's now the mayor, um, was the United States Attorney and I worked very closely with, um, with Mayor Durkin, then U.S. Attorney Durkin, uh, on that case. So I know the Seattle, I know Seattle fairly well. And, um, you know, our work in Seattle was very much focused on use of force, not on, so, and the, the race bias issues were um, uh, important, um, but they were um, part of a separate agreement that created a community police commission that, dealt, that uh, was to provide um, advocacy and guidance to the city and do, um, do the, the work there. And the consent decree focused on, on the use of force issues. Um, I was, um, so I think that, you know, I both was disappointed that things continued to be so um, uh, difficult between the community and the police department that some of the changes that we put into place, which we thought were going to be important, had not um, uh, made as big a difference as we might have, might have hoped. Um, uh, but also was disappointed in the response of the police department to the demonstrators. And I, I don't know whether the chief, um, certainly I know she said she resigned over um, the defunding, but I think that she had um, already got herself relatively out on thin ice um, in her whole response, you know, to the, uh, both the demonstrators originally, and then um, what happened with the, um, the zone that was created, the autonomous zone that was created. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think that it may be that it's sometimes very difficult to, for a chief to survive a crisis of that magnitude. Um, and so I know people think well of her, that she's well-respected. Um, it sounds like this was just, she may have found herself in a situation that just became impossible to proceed. Um, so, and my recollection of what happened in Seattle was that the defunding of the police was actually relatively modest. That it's not, I don't think they pulled you know, huge. That was like two percent or something like that. What yeah. I read, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't, it didn't, it didn't strike me as like the. Um, it didn't strike me that that ha- that was the sole reason for her, for her departure. That the, I, I suspect it was compounded. Many things were compounded over the last few months between her and the mayor, and that it was time for a change. Yeah, that's disappointing. Um, I'm often back to the back to the uh, uh, Virginia Police Department there. Um, uh, I'm often saddened when I hear about, um, you know, police departments that continue to hold back discipline. Uh, I had a conversation with a now retired captain, her name is uh, Sonia Pruitt, and uh, she was a 
captain, uh, I think of Montgomery, Maryland, I mm-hmm. think Mon- Montgomery County, Maryland. And so she was talking about uh, some of the things that some of the shenanigans, I should say, that uh, that the uh, background staff would do when they're looking at potential black candidates, right? So if one of the, if one of the, uh, this is her words, if, uh, if the parameters were that uh, we, we want our prospective uh, candidates to have a college degree, a bachelor's degree, okay, well, they have a bachelor's degree, the white guy has a bachelor's degree, the black guy has a bachelor's degree. And, but yeah, but this black guy, he got a C in math, so we're gonna take the white guy. That, that's not that's not one of the parameters. You have a degree, so so she said those types of games were played, and so yeah. you know, yeah, it's really disappointing. Yeah, no, it, and that is true, and it's um, it's true across the country. The other thing, and you probably know this better than I do, that um, promotions come through specialized units. Yeah, yeah and if yeah. you can't get into a specialized unit because you know they're a closed club, your promotion opportunities are also diminished. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen that in a bunch of jurisdictions where yeah. um, you've got these sort of, you know, being in the warrant unit or the SWAT or gun recovery or something is, is the path to leadership. And if you can't get, you know, and so it's not, it's, it's incredibly not uncommon that you'll see, um, you know, disproportionately black officers in patrol and in school resource officer positions and white officers in the specialized units, and that, and since those are really leadership positions that path to leadership, that's that's another reason why you see departments incredibly um, uh, top heavy in terms of their disparity. So even if they've got a um, overall a better um, diversity, that diversity is very often in the lower ranks. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that is disappointing. Yeah, thank you, sir. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I'll reach out to you again. I look forward to those articles. I appreciate it. Thank Good. you so much. I will say it's great. It's, <laughs> okay. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care.